You're listening to the Buckeye Visualist Podcast Show. Welcome back to another episode of the Buckeye Visualist, a podcast for members of the Ohio News Photographers Association, which aims to support Ohio's professional and student visual storytellers. I am your host, Lori King, and I really appreciate you tuning into this podcast. As most of you know, I was a longtime blade photojournalist, documenting life throughout Northwest Ohio and Southwest Michigan for 26 years. It's hard to fathom, but this month, August of 2022, marks my one-year anniversary since I retired from the blade. So it's kind of cool that my next guest, Stephen Zenner, is a current Toledo Blade multimedia journalist. Yet today, for this recording, August 19th, is the first time we've met. In fact, Stephen, a local boy from Perrysburg, Ohio, a suburb of Toledo, is actually sitting right next to me in my home office. That makes this show doubly special for me because it's the first time I've conducted a podcast interview in person. I am so glad you are sitting by my side for this interview, Stephen. Oh, thanks. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. Our primary focus for this show will be on Stephen's recent coverage of Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania, Hungary, and Ukraine. The Blade sent him, along with Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial page editor Jeff Garrett, who is also a Toledo Blade alum, to Ukraine for 40 days to cover how the Russian invasion has impacted the Ukrainian people. We are going to get into his coverage there, the logistical nightmare of traveling throughout a foreign country that is a hot war zone, his history of covering refugees as a former missionary, how he actually got into the business of photojournalism, his drive to learn multiple foreign languages, and how avoiding advocacy as a journalist is BS. Your story is quite fascinating, and I'm excited to share it with our Buckeye Visualist listeners. So let's get started with the beginning of your journey. You describe yourself as an art and music kid. Can you tell us when you first realized that you had an interest in photography as well? I know you graduated from Bowling Green State University in 2013 with a BFA. Did it start there? So my visual journey kind of began uh, when I saw my brother, he just started doodling these little drawings and I started mimicking him. And that was kind of the first time that I saw that kind of an expression like a, of a visual. And so I just started doodling in school throughout that. But my first e experience with a camera, our family had a RCA old school analog video camera. And me and my friends were kind of part of that first YouTube generation. YouTube had just sprung up. And so we started making stupid, almost uh, Saturday Night Live videos. We were just trying to be funny. And the, uh, the visuals for that didn't really matter. We were just trying to be funny. But eventually you do it enough. We made, um, made and edited probably over 55 videos and threw them on YouTube and I've locked them all away now. But you learned how to, to frame things. You learned how to kind of catch on to what movies were doing with their, their visual cuts. And you learned a little bit of how to frame things, at least for video. And that was my first interaction with filming things was video. And uh, that kind of led me into 
my BFA and my studying of art. I really went to school to become an animator. I wanted to create music and I wanted to create visuals to go along with it, essentially. I had kind of dreamed for forever and it's still kind of my hope to write a, a musical album and to create a whole visual kind of story along with it. Wow, that's pretty eclectic. <laughs> it is a little bit. A lot of people kind of talk about like the, you know, focusing in on one thing and doing doing just one thing in creativity. And I've kind of found that I don't think that's what creativity is. And then I think if you you look at a lot of some of the best artists, they are competent in a lot of different fields. And I think that becoming a specialist in one thing and becoming really good at one thing is lucrative. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily creative or meaningful. Someone's going to relate to that because we all have our own path for where we end up. Mm -hmm. And you ended up at the blade, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is something you probably never thought you would do while you were in high school in Perrysburg, Ohio. No, never dreamed of that. No, S strangely enough, never really had an interest in newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say neither did I, but actually when me and my brother were like four and six, I was the six-year-old. We actually designed our own newspaper and delivered it through oh, the wow. neighborhood. Hand yeah. Handwritten, of course, because I mean, yeah. computers didn't exist at mm -hmm. that point. We made our own newspaper and he was the cartoonist mm. and I was the writer. Yeah. And now he's a cartoonist. In fact, he's just sold his first cartoon to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, wow. The past month. And he was also a longtime cartoonist for the Playboy magazine. Okay. And he does cartoon books and greeting cards. So I ended up being a writer and he ended up being a cartoonist. We started at four and six years old. Wow. That's, <laughs> Never that's know. cool. You initially were hired at the Blade as a photo intern right after I left. Uh, but I don't think you even finished out that internship due to being hired as a full-time multimedia journalist for the news desk. I'm really curious how you went from being a photo intern to the multimedia journalist. How did that transpire? It's really all Mike Pearson's fault. Um, and Mike Pearson at the time was the features editor at The Blade. And I remember he was, you know, smoking a cigarette in the parking lot. And I was just a photo intern. And uh, I didn't really know who he was. I was trying to keep all the names straight. But he was like, he was like, you know, Steven, come on over here. And this in this old school newsman kind of a way, just said like, what are you interested in? And what do you like to do stories on? And he was like, well, if you ever decide to do a story, you could send it to me and it'll be on the, the mag page. I do a mag page. And so the mag page is like um, kind of this more visuals based photo part of the newspaper. Got a lot of photos on it. And then you write 15 inches, 12 inches. So it runs every Sunday. Not not super uh, writing heavy. And so they would have photographers do that all the time. So at the same time, I had come from a freelancing background. So I was used to finding stories and I was used to pitching them to editors for Reuters, Bloomberg, AFP, Getty. And so I became really, really comfortable because that's what I had to do for about a year and a half. Became very comfortable with, you know, just finding stories, following up on things, 
um, and then writing pitches to editors for you know these giant media companies and then having them pick them up or tell me no so i i saw this as kind of just an extension of freelancing it's a little bit um less formal than with those companies and those companies pay a little bit more but the skill set was the same so i was picking up my car from a from a repair the guy goes uh how much time you got <laughs> i was like i was like uh i mean how long do you need it he was like maybe like six hours and i was like okay cool and uh there was an older guy there and he said hey i'll where do you live i'll give you a ride home real quick like if you need a ride home i was like okay that works and so he drove me you know 15 minutes back home you know he just started telling me all the different stuff and I can't remember exactly what it was that he said, but something that he said really made me like go like, there's a story with this guy, something about this guy. You just kind of like develop kind of in a nose for it. When you've been pitching stories, you can kind of sense who's got one or who who has something that's like worth following up on. And um, I got his number and then I followed up with him. And then uh, one of these days, so the blade uh, for, and I think most papers do this where you just have downtime as a photographer in between assignments. They call it roving here at, at the blade, other places they call it like, you know, I think feature hunting, but you know, you just kind of wander around and, and during one of those roves, I just called him up and I was like, Hey, you at home, can I meet you up, meet up with you? And then I met up with him at his house and, uh, he just had these crazy looking, um, metal ornaments all over his backyard he was like a ex-marine and he had all, all this marine stuff and he had been in like the vietnam war and uh he he had a lot of like things that were visually going on around and i just kind of asked him about the the metal hanging you know sculptures that were all glittery and they had all these different mirrors and it was kind of interesting because this guy was like one of the toughest looking kind of guys he's really gruff he drank and smoked the whole time that i was with him all the time and uh he had kind of like a, a gruff like you know lower voice and uh so i'm like oh you're making things with like glitter and sparkles and mirrors and like this is kind of interesting and he was like I like kind of just touched it and he was like oh yeah well I started making those when my wife died and I was like oh okay so that's I guess the story and then he just kept opening up and I, I find uh, I don't know if that's like a quality of me or if that's a quality of the people that I find that you know a lot of people do just have stories that they want to tell someone he was very open he had a really sad go of the last number of years of his life where his um, wife had died in the bed next to him and uh, it, it kind of became a story about him and like kind of processing that loss and he essentially just started making these ornaments because he he needed some way to figure out how to deal with the the death of death of his wife from a, a brain cancer situation that had had gone really far really fast so i wrote that up someone came up to me and they're like no one told us you knew how to write and i've never taken a, a journalism writing class in my life i really felt incapable anytime i tried to write journalism I, I wrote some stuff in my master's program 
and my teacher gave me like a C on the writing and I was like oh <laughs> it's like but nobody had ever told me how to to write things but I have been writing poetry and songs and scripts we used to write all these different scripts for all those youtube videos and uh, i wrote plays i wrote my like fifth grade play so i've always been writing i've always been like putting things together and creating stuff it was just sort of the form of uh journalistic writing which is which is essentially like get the get the information there concisely and easily and easy to read as possible whereas like my background was creative writing which is essentially uh make the reader feel something and so especially for a mag page i think it was kind of the perfect storm where i could put together these photos and that strength and then uh, you can make it a little bit more fluffy you make it more featurey um which was my strength you know i opened with and and i i tend to do this in all of my articles that i write is i kind of open with a uh, very descriptive language, try and really set the scene, really put people in the in the place where the things are happening, kind of pull them into what's going on. And I think that's what kind of caught them is that my hooks were, I, I read so many different journalistic writing. And I, I, I think this is why I was never really drawn to newspapers is because <laughs> it's just so, it's so terse. It's just so like, give me the information now and uh it's it's so consumerist and and uh i was never drawn to that kind of a thing i i know there was like a 60 minutes that i watched when i was a kid about journalists and uh one of the it was like kind of a some sort of anniversary and i remember like the guy it was some editor had died or something like that and they were homaging him and so they uh he he apparently would always say tell me a story tell me a story and so I, I never was super interested in newspaper kind of stuff because it just seemed like very heartless the way that I approached it um, I was really surprised the boy liked my writing I was not expecting them to like my writing at all um, because it's it's flowery it's uh it's artistic it's emotional a lot of times i'll read back through my stuff and be like oh i could have said that more concisely but yeah <laughs> well i think i'm going to answer the question mm -hmm. for you about yeah. is it you or is it your subjects yeah yeah i think it's a characteristic of you and who you are mm -hmm. because if you're going to be a storyteller you have to have elements of compassion and curiosity and you need to write about what you care about mm -hmm. and what you know yeah so just listening to that one single story mm -hmm. I can sense all of that in you mm -hmm. and I think that um, the blade likes your writing because it's a bitter pill to swallow for editors when we're losing our readers because we're so who what where when and why and how Mm -hmm. and, and not more of the who, what, where, and not the how and the why. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you like answering that. And I'm also a featurey writer myself. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I would fit in well with our news. Um, I will link to that story yeah. on the ONPA website. Yes. So the readers can go back and 
read what you wrote and see the photos that you supplied with it. You know, this is a good segue into my next question. Yeah. Before you're hired at the Blade, you said that you freelance for Getty and AFP and Bloomberg and Reuters. Uh, can you tell us what it took to get your foot in the door uh, of those wire services? Getting your foot in the door is difficult. My coursework for my master's program ended in May of 2020 from OU. So I'm still working on my master's thesis, but the coursework ended and then uh, kind of my jobs all kind of dried up. That that happened for a lot of people where there weren't really, there wasn't really work. There were no, you know, all the internships kind of closed, like a lot of the, not all of them, but a lot of the photojournalism internships closed. And so it was difficult to figure out what to do. <laughs> At the end of May, um, George Floyd protests, you know, like earlier in that year, you had Ahmed Aubrey, and then you had uh, Breonna Taylor. And then, you know, George Floyd happened, and it was explosive, it, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was kind of the third strike, you're out kind of a deal for, for our, I think our whole country who is confined at home. And so that kind of kicked off. And so I just felt like I needed to be there. Like it felt morally imperative for me to document it. And so I just started showing up. I was showing up most days and I wasn't afraid of, and I, I don't necessarily recommend this because I, I just went there alone. I couldn't get anybody to go with me. I went, I went there with another person a few different times and then eventually kind of ran into a number of different people, but I just started showing up and by nature of showing up pretty much every day, I met um, some other freelancers who were covering the same work. If you're out there, you can kind of tell who's a protester and who's like an actual journalist. There's a, an amount of professionalism that they carry themselves with. So I saw these two, these two guys who uh, had covered a lot of different stuff, didn't know them at all, but I saw that they had gas masks, you know, clipped to their belts and I saw the equipment they were using and I was like, okay, these guys are most likely legit. So I went up, talked to one of them and the one ended up being Matthew Hatcher, who uh, he's a, you know, a freelancer. He's been freelancing for a long time. He spent some time in Ukraine. He was actually in Hong Kong, I think right before COVID hit, but all these freelancers who were abroad were all called back home during 2020 because of the pandemic. And so he, he was an Ohio boy. So he was covering Ohio because that's kind of the nature of what he was doing. But, you know, he saw me out there, you know, like getting tear gassed by the police, just like he was. He was like, oh, are you an OU kid? And I was like, yeah, he had the same alum kind of thing. And we bonded over some of the the same teachers, uh, Marcy Nicewander, uh, who's a kind of a legend um, in photojournalism, won a Pulitzer Prize back in the 90s. And uh, she had taught both of us. And so uh, we kind of bonded over that. And then uh, I didn't expect it, but he he took a look at my work, which honestly, looking back at my work from from back then, it was it was really not incredibly strong. I had been wondering whether or not I was going to jump out of photojournalism because I didn't really fit in with my cohort. I felt like a lot of the different things with journalism were really, really pretentious and uh, that this was kind of almost an elitist group that kind of had 
had their heads up their butts. Like I just, I just really did not vibe with them. I didn't think they were helping perpetuate anything, but like the status quo, I mean, and it's not incredibly fair to, to judge kids who are in college. That was my master's program. So I had, I had lived a good amount of uh, life before then and kind of seen how things work. And I, I, I guess there was a lot of me just like kind of saying on the inside, like, I just don't think you know how to make change in, in, a, in a real way or how to really effectively, I guess, love people well and, and do this kind of a thing. And so I was, I was almost like out, but like this George Floyd thing was like, I think this needs to be documented. And even at the time, there was a big debate over whether white photographers should be f- covering the George Floyd protests. And so a lot of the OU kids really thought that it was immoral to do so. Pretty much my argument was always like, can you go there? Can you meet them? Can you get to know these people? Are you there for you? Or are you there for them? Yeah, yeah. And so like, can you integrate into the community? Because like, I'll be honest, like there are days there's nobody out there but me. I felt like it was important to be out there and it was dangerous to be out there. And so that was my whole thing was like, nobody's covering this in Columbus. Like, you know, every once in a while people come up and they show up and, but like who else is there? And uh, I actually had some of my work um, pulled into kind of some legal suits against uh, police officers for police brutality. You kind of saw it work its way around. So like the, uh, you know, journalism is supposed to be kind of this check on those people with power. That's like part of what it is, you know, like the fourth estate. You know, a lot of people talk about fake news and different things like that. But, you know, part of what helps a democracy work is giving people information. And so like for me, I think it's a complex job, but I also think like uh, it's completely situational. Like every situation is a little bit different. And I know that like if nobody shows up, anybody who has like a, an experience like organizing something has had that moment where nobody shows up and they're the only one doing the thing. Uh, if, if nobody shows up to do a thing, then that thing just doesn't get done. And so like, there are, there are certain instances where, you know, like there's a million photographers and they're all like cramming to get the one shot of, I don't know, like, uh, like, and, and, and I've heard from other photographers that that's how the beginning of the war in Ukraine went, uh, that there were just so many photographers kind of cramming to get their shots or their fame or whatever, but there is nobody where I was, the protests in Columbus. Well, <laughs> since you just mentioned yeah. Ukraine, uh, you were first introduced to the refugee crisis while working as a missionary for six years with Adventures and Missions. Mm-hmm. Did that experience actually kickstart your love for telling humane stories with visuals and the written word? Did, do you think it started there? No, I had for a long time desired to kind of combine visuals and words. And I was actually very impacted by, strangely enough, Pink Floyd's The Wall, that whole, you know, animation, non-linear kind of narrative. It was very powerful for me. And I thought this is a really <laughs> sad and depressing album. And, uh, but it was really raw. It was very real. It was wonderful art. There, there really hasn't been anything that's been done like it since. can kind of throw maybe Fantasia in there, but it, that's a very different feel. 
but yeah, no, from, from the wall, I kind of felt connected to a lot of like different artist kids. Cause like I was just kind of making art in my basement on my own. And, and I felt like that really felt connective and I felt seen in that movie. Um, and I wanted to make more stuff like that, but I wanted to kind of illustrate and create these narratives that kind of brought people together in a deep way like that, that weren't blockbuster. So I, I think it really started back then, which was, I think I watched The Wall when I was a, a, some sort of teenager playing rock music in my basement. But yeah, like- <laughs> I saw The Wall yeah. in the movie theaters when it first came out. See, I'm jealous. I'm I was jealous. in high school when that first came out. <laughs> I think it's one of the first examples of mixed media. Mm-hmm. Well, I brought up the missionary. Yeah. Because when we were talking the other day, you said that you were there as a missionary. However, when you were sent to Greece to cover the refugee mm-hmm. crisis there, you had a, uh, a pool to telling their stories before you even realized you were a photojournalist, right? Yeah, I did. I did. I think that's the first time that I started. So, so even my artwork when I was in art school was sort of narrative based. And that's, that's a feedback that a lot of my professors, my art professors gave me was like, not everything has to be a story. Um, <laughs> Unless you're yeah. a storyteller. Yeah. And so I think, I think a lot of them were pushing me to be a little bit more abstract and like, just be, think about forms and things like that. And I, and I, and I get that. I get that a lot now. I, I really love like a, a Rothko. If, if you ever get a chance to go to the Toledo Museum of Art or any museum of art, because they've all got Rothkos, just stand in front of a Rothko and don't think about it because you get, you get a certain feeling from it and that's abstract art and it just makes you feel a certain way. But I was uh, a missionary in 2015 and 2016 and we were deployed in <laughs> I say deploy because missionaries kind of do have like a kind of a military uh, organization to them. But the uh, we were we were put on the island of Lesbos, Greece, and uh, we were um, staying in in Molivos, and uh, the camp was at Scalastica Minia, and um, it was a. Uh, we were running the camp. And, and the problem was, if you look at the UNHCR um, statistics for while we were there, there were about 3,000 refugees coming to that island every day. And it was one of the biggest, at the time, it was the biggest influx of refugees into Europe since World War II. Um, I don't know if that's changed with the Ukrainian stuff. It, it changes all the time. Um, and that's a much more complicated situation because uh, they go back and forth between Europe. So it's hard to tell. We were there because the camp was being run by about eight people before we got there. And so they desperately needed people. So like, if you can imagine eight people onboarding about 3000 people every day, they desperately needed help. And so that's, that's what we were, were there to do is kind of provide some relief to them and to essentially just give them numbers so that, because they were running out the clock, like they were, they were working like 24 hour shifts and things like that beforehand. And so we essentially came so that like the people who were initially running the camp could take us, could sleep. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we, I wasn't there to necessarily report. Um, I was, I had a number of different jobs at the camp, uh, including like gatekeeper and like getting them onto 
the uh, getting them onto the buses to get them to larger camps that were more inland or getting them to the ports. It was really boring stuff. We were sorting clothes in old military tents. So they had these they had these old World War II tents that were, were left over and uh, we had a bunch of donations and we were essentially sorting clothes. <laughs> so, But yeah. you had your camera with you. I did, I did. I, um, I was a photographer. I had been working as a product photographer for the past two years leading up to this. And um, I had a 5D Mark II, 50 millimeter uh, Tamron 24 to 70. I just kind of went out after my shift was over um, there would essentially be like some gaps in between like when our driver would pick us up and when our shift ended. So I would just take any time that I got to uh, just walk around and listen to people's stories because I was I was really just curious. I had no idea what would happen or really who these people were, but it felt really important to understand them. I don't know if I've ever felt that exact intensity again since then but it, it felt it felt incredibly it felt like it was the most important thing like on the planet when I was doing it because it was just sort of like uh, kind of was at the time yeah at the at the time and 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 to to give you an idea of how bonkers it was like I didn't even know there was a refugee crisis before I was there so like so like I didn't know I didn't know about the Syrian war I kind of stayed uh, I think um, especially Toledo, Northwest Ohio is, is kind of laissez um, when it comes to politics. And so I was, I was kind of this dopey 24 year old kid who didn't really know anything about politics, didn't really care anything about politics. And uh, then uh, kind of got this um, shock value of like, oh, there's a war in Syria. Okay. But and then who are these people? And then it, and then politics became very, very real for me in an instant. Like uh, it was it, a lot of things changed for me after that experience. And it was, it was really intense and it was really automatic that, oh, okay. So that dopiness was definitely like a, an amount of just like, you know, <laughs> my privilege coming out there, but it, it just felt so insane to me to to hear these stories and they were they're heartbreaking stories and I don't think I've heard more heartbreaking stories since um in all the things that I've covered and all the different um I think I think I've potentially made a niche in the blade with just telling terrible stories about trauma <laughs> but uh of all the ones I, I think you know the Syrian and the Afghan and the Iranian refugees um and the Iraqi refugees had the most insane stories that I've ever heard in my life. You admit you're well aware that covering the refugee crisis is emotionally rough. Yes, yes, uh, no, yeah. Particularly while you were in Greece mm -hmm. um, as a missionary, the terrible stories of death and despair was and still is pretty tragic. Considering this quote from one of those refugees, you met there. Um, I'm going to let you say that in your own words. <laughs> what was the quote right. that pretty much defined that movement? This defined the Syrians for me, because all the different refugees had different stories. And this was, this was kind of the Syrian ethos, which was, um, I think, any country, and this was similar to the Ukrainian ethos. I think it, it just comes from active war, when it's like a really fresh war. And so, uh, I really didn't have an idea of what 
was going on with the Syrians. So like I asked, I just went up and asked one and I was like, what is it like in Syria? And he said, you, you know, you want to know what it's like in Syria? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you really want to know? And I was like, yeah, I want to know. And he said, you know, it's bombs, bombs, always fucking bombs. And I didn't know what to say. Looking back, it's a kind of an embarrassing moment for me, but it really did kind of show me the intensity of of what I was under. Um, and so the Syrians were much angrier than one of the other refugees. A lot of the other countries had, I think, a little bit more... It is sad to say, but they, they had more or less accepted what was happening in their countries, especially the Afghans. So like, um, which is, um, I have a really big heart for Afghans. I think they are the ones that actually I connected with the most. And that's, I still have like a heart for them, but uh, their, their country has been essentially on and off in turmoil or war since 1979. And, uh, you know, 2019, I, I did a lot of work in my grad program um, with like infographics and information and research uh, highlighting 40 years of unrest. And if you, you can even look at how many times their flag changed in the past 40 years, it's insane. There is uh, two Afghans that stood out to me even more than the Syrians. And one, one was this uh, refugee named Hezbollah and uh, he had uh, scars all over his face and he walked with a limp because he had been hit by like a, a roadside bomb. Um, and he was, I think, 15. And I went up to him and I tried to, you know, I talked to him, asked about his story. And he was like surrounded by a bunch of his friends. And he didn't want me to take his picture because he was afraid that uh, he was ugly. And he didn't want to have that picture. And I, I told him like, well, I can, I can tell people in the United States what's going on in your country. That's kind of what I told him he kind of went into this uh, kind of group mode mentality. And he said, well, if it can help my countrymen, then I'll do it. I got a portrait of him and I, I posted on Instagram. And so like, uh, I actually got a lot of feedback from that. Um, not nearly as much as I would have hoped, but um, I posted it on Instagram and uh, I also posted it in the blog. And so I took his picture and after I posted that picture, I got, uh, you know, questions. And I also posted on Facebook, I believe. And uh, people were asking, like, what can we do? How can we help? And, you know, uh, as a 24-year-old, <laughs> like, uh, it, my, my answer, actually, I think was pretty good, which was, like, they need a place to stay. Like, mm. That's what they need. Like, they're refugees. They can't go back home. Like, this is not, this is not viable. Like, like the, the the place where they're living is essentially destroyed. If I can show t tell the other story that that really like kind of rocked me was uh, this um, these twelve year old Afghans that were traveling together, and so it's a really dangerous route. You had to go through from Afghanistan to Turkey, and then you had to cross this water, which a lot of people died in the water. These twelve year old Afghan kids were just there by themselves, you know, no parental supervision, and so like I was just sort of like, hey, what's what's up? Do you have parents? Where are your parents? Like what's going on there? They, they said, no, we don't have parents. And they just kind of said nonchalantly, like our parents were killed by the Taliban. They're beheaded by the Taliban. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's why we left. I kind of like, just kind of took that. And then I was like, hey, can I take your pictures? And they were like, sure. And it was, it was interesting. Cause like, uh, you know, those are, those are some of the like hard, harder hits, but 
everyone in the refugee camps had those had those stories. Like I met political prisoners from Iran. I met um, Iraqis who had been held by ISIS and ransomed back to their families, and like all sorts of different stuff like that. And even people from Africa. I heard stories from Africans who who kind of went with the refugee route who you know either were like dispossessed from like a, a political party that used to be in power and now they're running away for their lives and different things like that so you just met everyone from everywhere with all the problems <laughs> well, now i know why the blaze sent you to ukraine <laughs> yeah right, right you were uh prepared uh, when they hired me in as a multimedia journalist um so I think three photographers left in the short span that I was an intern at The Blade. So it was you, Jetta Frazier, and Amy Vogt. And uh, Amy Vogt got a different job. Jetta Frazier retired, you retired. And so um, there were some openings for photographer position. Uh, also, um, just the union struggle at The Blade, um, I think, reached its height within like the first few weeks that I was there. And I think 13 people quit in one day or something like that. It was something insane. And so I think there was a, a demand for not only photographers, but for writers. I think they saw that ability, they gave me the job. I have an interesting job in that like, uh, I go out and find stories, even though I like, work in a newsroom every day, like uh, I'm, I'm not familiar exactly with what is completely normal for most writers. And so I go and ask them, I actually do my homework on that too, because it's important to know like how much work everybody else is doing to kind of negotiate your way through what you're doing and, and how hard they're necessarily pushing you because that can get messy too. So um, I think most other writers you know, as, as a photographer, you're just kind of given assignments and you go to the assignments and then you rove every once in a while for photo features. And then, which is, which is very different than going out and finding a story. And I think it's kind of similar for most of the writers that I meet over there too. Is that Working for what, those wire agencies, you were groomed to generate your own stories. Yeah. And I, and I really didn't have a, a desire to work on a whole lot that wasn't something that I was interested in. So they, you know, talked to me about, you know, well, we bring you on and you said, like, you know, they showed me the mag page and they're like, what if that was your job? What if you just did that? What if you, what if you just focused on finding stories? You could do your own stories. You'd pitch them to, you know, this could be like a, a collaboration between photo desk, city desk, features desk, and like uh, essentially like we've never really had a position like this. Maybe we could make that work. You'd write, you'd do photos, you'd do video, and um, you could kind of essentially do whatever you want. You'd find whatever stories you want, you'd shoot it how you want, you write it how you want. And that sounded like a pretty good opportunity for me to, um, you know, work on things that I cared about while also kind of build a, a portfolio almost custom made to what I would like to do. And in that, you know, I asked, you know, they asked me like, well, what are you, what do you want to do stories on? I was like, refugees. I was like, I want to do stories on refugees. I want to do stories on uh, work relations, like union stuff, honestly. And then 
you know, the, I think those were like kind of the, the, the two big ones. I was like, yeah. And also like race relations and things like that. But I think, I think the refugees and the, the work stories were, were the, the bigger ones, the Rust Belt. I want to do stories, you know, I'm from the Rust Belt. I've worked in factories and stuff like that. So I was like, I want to, and in going other places and, and being a lot of different places, I wanted people to understand kind of what it's like to grow up in a Rust Belt town what it's like to to grow up in um, a place like that and what it's like for the people there in the manufacturing sector and refugees. Okay, so they know that you have a propensity to cover mm-hmm. a refugee, the crisis. Mm-hmm. So when this came about, mm-hmm. they tagged you. They did. So uh, I had been glued to Instagram watching every bit of information i was watching lindsay adario and all, all the people who were first on the scene covering everything that was going on with the war from the moment that it started i didn't expect it it felt like felt very impending very doom doom kind of I, I don't know how many americans kind of felt that but i i definitely felt a really strong anxiety and and i i reposted everything and i even had um some really top photojournalists kind of compliment me on my Instagram stories of all the different information that I conglomerated into one. So like you could literally just read my story and know everything that was going on in Ukraine at the time. And uh, by the end of the first week of the war, uh, my editor, uh, my the city desk editor, um, Mike Bryce called me up and he just said, you know, like, do you have an active passport? And I said, yeah. Um, and he he was like okay do you speak any other languages and i was like yeah i i'm not fluent in spanish but i understand it enough i took you know spanish in high school and i continue to like kind of practice it and but not anything super fluent he kind of shared with me like you know keep this on the dl but like we're thinking about sending somebody to poland uh potentially to cover the refugees there he's like what do you think about that i was like that sounds like exactly like what i want to do what i've already been thinking about doing and i had just sort of an instinct that i was that i would go there that was even before i had that conversation so um it 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 was definitely like something that was on my radar and something that i was working towards and i think uh i had a few friends of mine go to ukraine and they um, kept it very, very secret right before they went and um, just kind of slipped away. Since they were doing it and they were freelancers, I I was thinking about it myself. I was thinking about quitting and, and going. So, Well, they saved you from quitting. Yes, <laughs> they, did, they did. And they paid your way. So yes, yes. Bonus. You and Jeff Garrett, mm-hmm. you go together. Yes. And you were there a total of 40 days. 40 days off American soil, yeah. And you worked really long days, like 12-hour days, seven days a week. Yeah. You, you go to Ukraine and Poland and Eastern Europe, and you're, yeah. you're covering the refugee crisis there. Yeah. Tell me about some of the stories that you mined while you were there. Oof, uh, how, how were you impacted by the Ukrainian refugees? They, they, they all kind of feed like all the refugee stories kind of feed into another. So the Syrian refugee crisis and the Afghans and the Iranians, the Iraqis and um, all the other, the Pakistani, you know, Bangladeshi, Moroccans, like all of the, sto- all of the different refugees that I met, they didn't really have a conclusive ending. 
and that really bothered me. And I think that's kind of what kept the book open. Um, they were all different kind of stories. They're all coming from different places. A lot of them are trying to get to Germany or France or whatever to to get um, the social kind of welfare types of things that they had set up for them there. I had not heard back from, you know, I interacted, I interfaced with tons of different refugees and knew them and talked to them and got their stories and stuff like that. And um, I really only heard back from one who had made it. And that really bothered me. And so the stories that I got from Ukrainians were much more similar. It's not fair to compare pain or anything like that. They they weren't as as vicious. They weren't as as just uh, absolutely terrible. Um, like obviously they they were terrible, but uh, the the stories that I heard from that are hearing from people who fled. You know, the I think I think the main event is. February 24th, 5 a.m. I think that's like, you know, it's like a 9-11 event for them. Like it was like February 24th, 9, 5 a.m. You know, like that's when the, they started bombing across the, the, the entire country. And so everyone has this shared event where everything happens. And so like that almost became, um, you know, after hearing it so many times, it it loses its intensity that that night was really really terrible for all these people um and so i think that was like one main thing the first stories that we heard were from from students in hungary and so we landed in budapest our one of our our translator actually was on the plane with us and she sat next to Ukrainian refugee um because we were coming from frankfurt to budapest um that was our connecting plane plane ride and so our translator just talked to this Ukrainian refugee who is like in, she's like a 20 something, you know, and she had evacuated from Kyiv. And so from the moment our plan landed, we were working like immediately. And so she kind of told her us her story and she told us like other stories, but I imagine there's a lot of crossover with like other types of disasters and things like that. It did feel like a, its own brand of of terrible where uh, her name was Ivanka and and her story was like essentially she woke up to these bombs everybody was like thinking about like whether this war was going to happen or not and then she suddenly wakes up to bombs and then she's so anxious she doesn't know what to pack it's 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 an it's an interesting thing because she you know she made a TikTok about it like in the moment, which is so bizarre to me. So she's, you know, she's younger, she's Gen Z. So like, um, and then you could watch that TikTok. It's like out there in TikTok where like, you know, it says in Ukrainian, like, what do you do when you don't know what to pack? And then like, it's got music to it. And then like, it shows her clothes and like, um, you know, and, and what, what she ended up taking, which was, um, actually really helpful for me as a journalist because I'm like, oh, this is a video that shows me exactly what you took. Um, it's much easier to write about. I, I have a visual and like you have a list and, you know, essentially what she took is like five dresses and like deodorant. That's about it. Each person had their own stories. I, when I really do think about like a lot of the people that we interviewed were already stable in, in one way or another. And so their stories weren't, you know, I was, when I was in the refugee camps, those people were en route. And so their, their situations. They were safe. 
Yeah. Already. Yeah. So they they had already relocated. So this was, you know, the war started in February. You know, they had already relocated to a new place in whatever country they were in. And so they were a lot of the stories that I dealt with in Ukraine were more about like, okay, well, can you recall like what happened then and how you got to where you are now? Because where you are now is essentially some form of stability. Whereas like, you know, when I was in the refugee camps, it was people in route who that passage from from Turkey to Greece, the, that water, um, a lot of people died in that. And so a lot of people were, were not in a good place when we saw them. They were not like in a, in a, in a necessarily safe. How many stories uh, did you write for that series? And did you take photos, the people you interviewed? The Blade, I believe, published 11 different stories altogether. And we had a story of like a Georgian who had relocated to Ukraine and then the Georgians like country was <clears throat> invaded when she was a child by Russians. So this was like the second time that she was invaded by Russians. And then we had these, this community of young, you know, Budapest kind of art students who were dealing with their grief in Budapest. And that, that was the first story that I wrote. And then, and, and, you know, I'm doing photos and, and writing all of this. So one of the more difficult stories was this, uh, so Homoste, I think they're going to, I think I'm saying that wrong, but like it's it's near Bucha. It's right outside of Kiev. Uh, it's actually really close to the airport where, but it was a Ukrainian plane. Um, it was bombed in the first days of uh, the Russian invasion. Um, but this family from Homestay that was occupied, they were probably the hardest story to deal with because the father didn't want to be photographed because he because of his work and the relations at work and kind of where the the economics intersected with different Russian uh, companies and different things like that. So he didn't want him to be photographed. So it was, it was very difficult. But his story is one of the, one of the more intense stories because it was, it was almost, it, it reminded me of kind of stories that I had heard from like um, Nazi Germany about like Jews escaping is, is kind of what it reminded me of because uh, he, he had to, uh, he had his whole family and it was occupied by Russians and uh, they were kind of counting the hours, like how long, how much longer are these guys going to let us live? Like how much longer are, are we going to be safe here in our town and we need to get out of here? Because Homestay is really, uh, it's a stone's throw away from Bucha where, where the, the whole population essentially massacred. When you were filing the stories and photos, did uh, the blade wait till you got back to publish them or were they publishing them while you were there? They were uh, publishing them while I was over there. So yeah. They were timely. They were, they were timely. I think the last one that I published was the end of July or maybe the beginning of August. And that was the story dealing with the Romanian family. And that one just took longer because I was pumping out about a, a story a week. And I was there for about six weeks. When I came back, I did, I did four more stories and, and kind of, wrapped it up there was just too much too much information too much to really process and understand and, and and write down and I was also doing a lot more I think um we were a two-person team so uh Jeff Garrett is a wonderful writer was was great to to do this uh trip with him uh, the blade had me there also writing and the blade had me there also doing photos and then uh, just by nature of like my experience in the past, you know, 
I, I knew how to find stories and I knew how to find fixtures and that wasn't a new thing for me, you know, like finding fixtures and finding like shelter and finding different people just out in the world in, in different countries was a missionary thing. Like essentially the missionary thing was like, just drop you in the middle of nowhere, figure out, figure it out. You know, like so a lot of times they had hosts for us, but it, there was sort of this like, you know, figure it out aspect to it. And so that, training came in handy a lot and then like also the the training as like a freelancer came in handy so um i ended up you know just figuring out all these different countries along with jeff our first translator was somebody that i knew in toledo um throughout poland uh i was kind of i was kind of meshing translators together like literally there were a ton of ukrainians there so like uh, I couldn't find somebody who would do that job for us, that us there. And so How did you pay them? Um, we essentially just paid them a lot of them in just cash. So like, and you know, just negotiating different rates on the way. So it was pretty wow. informal. Wow. So, so like there wasn't like a, a necessarily translator rate in, in Poland. I was just walking around and going to different refugee organizations or a ton of different organizations and being like, Hey, do you have somebody who speaks English here? And then eventually like, you know, get to the bottom of like, hey, are you free from this time to this time? Do you want to translate for me while I do an interview? Can you do that? And uh, that worked out pretty well some of the time. There's one interview that was absolutely horrid and uh, it would have been a really great story, but didn't turn into one because of the translation. You're attempting to learn the language now. I am, I am. When, when the war broke out, I, I paid for, I already had downloaded Duolingo and uh, just started learning Ukrainian. Uh, before I, you knew you were going to the Blade? Before the Blade really okay, so sent you... me. I had an understanding of some phrases and I, I learned the Cyrillic alphabet. You know, it's like a, a three-year-old or four-year-old level of like what I understand, honestly. Like, I, it's like you know, I can sound out a word and sometimes that word sounds like English. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of it just worked well just you know previous you know hello hey um or like dobreden dobraranek dobravechi you know good morning good good day good evening you know like or like uh just thanking people for things like diakio you know like just simple phrases that it 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 really did matter and it really did make the difference uh, for a lot of different people what kind of camera equipment did you take so the blade uses canon equipment blade gave me um 5d mark 3 and a 5d mark 4 i rarely ever use those what i'm wearing right now is a r6 with an adapted olympus zuko uh, 28 f2 the thing that i've kind of learned um i learned this in grad school with one of my roommates who really changed the way that i looked at photography a lot of the and his name's james year he uh, switched over to syracuse uh, he's finishing his master's there right now, but he was a big believer in not only mirrorless, but like adapting lenses. So I took an RF 24 to 70 F 2.8 uh, zoom, and then a old EF 7200 F 2.8, the two, um, the second edition of it, and adapted that to my RF. I took an R6 and an EOS R, which a lot of people cringe at. Um, but uh, if you're 
especially for like zooms and things like that you don't need a super great camera for detail shots and things like that if you're doing anything over 70 the up close and personal stuff needs to be a little bit quicker so i took my own equipment i took all of my own equipment except for the 7200 and the 24 to 70 i've always been a canon guy i just like the way it feels it feels like an extension of my body the the way that the controls work are are, are very very intuitive for me so i adapted um so most of what i shot honestly were was uh r6 an EOS R with an adapted my my go-to set of lenses was a was this Olympus 28 f2 I have to manually focus and then uh, it's the artist in you yeah it is it is the artist in me and and it has a very distinct look too but it forces you you know primes force you to think about things different so there's that and then I had a I have a um, old FL Canon 55 1.2 um, I took some of my best portraits with that. So I, I would have a uh, 28 on one body, the 55 on the other, and then I would switch out sometimes the uh, 55 for an 85 F2, or I'd switch out the 28 for um, a 35 um, 1.8. Um, those are both RF lenses. And the whole idea was to keep it very small. Um, the, the idea when we were going over there, Jeff said, you know, like, I want to keep it to like one bag. I don't want to book any baggage. I don't want, I don't want anything to be lost. I don't want anything. I want us to be kind of light and quick moving. And I was right along with him. I, I took three pairs of pants, but I shouldn't have. And I kind of regretted it. I really should have only taken two. And then like a bunch of t-shirts that I didn't really care what happened to them. So we were traveling light. So I had these four prime lenses and the zooms, which I didn't like to take out. But I noticed when I did a lot more human kind of interest kind of work that, you know, those zooms, those zooms are for are, are really for like events like if i if if i ever did see like you know the front of a war zone those would be really really helpful but you have to have at least one yeah i mainly worked with primes and the main reason was to to make the cameras less intimidating like that was one of the main things and you can see it when you you interact with people you have a a giant 24 to 70 with you know canon 24 to 70 and you're shoving in somebody's face and you can tell you can tell when how they react and and they have a, a lot more difficult time just being put at ease and, and especially for i i knew what we were going to be doing and i knew that we would these would be i wouldn't have the time that i have in the u.s to you know go back one or more times to the same person and kind of build that relationship and do more of like a long doc thing where they can kind of get used to you run and gun yeah so like so like i knew i knew it would be like maybe we really only see these people once mm-hmm. ever and so i wanted to be inauspicious so to this day um the 28 f2 is my go-to depending on the distance maybe i'll switch to 35 and uh 55 1.2 just a beautiful beautiful rendering beautiful lens a lot of uh the pictures that i took with it ended up um you know on the front page so yeah (laughs) well i'm going to be linking to that series as well on the onpa website so i just wanted to mention that um before i let you go yeah that you did go to the atlanta photojournalism seminar yes yes so you went when did you go there 
I think maybe what you're getting at is like, how did I get into photojournalism? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I kind of fell into photojournalism. There were a few different people who, after I had come back from my missionary trip, who had said like, maybe you should study journalism. And that, that was a really weird idea for me. Because you were doing it. Yeah, it was well. I it was a missionary. Yeah, I was. I was kind of doing it. It was well. It was first person. You know, we're here. We're doing this. You know, like you know, it's different. Yeah, it was. It was a little bit different. So they had recommended maybe you should get a, a degree in journalism, and I really didn't have the money to to get my master's, or at least I didn't think so. And so, oh, one thing led to another. I ended up in Atlanta, and I was selling running shoes, and uh, this CNN producer had come in this one day and my friend was waiting on her and like fitted her for shoes but we got to the checkout counter at the same time and we learned that she was a CNN producer and I was like hey I went to I worked with like the Syrian refugee crisis I have a lot of photos from that would you take a look like I don't know if you have any like positions or jobs I was hoping to get a, a better job than like a shoe salesman so I don't know I didn't know how anything worked I didn't know if she knew people or or what. So I was really looking for a job. And so like, that's kind of what she said is like, maybe I could get you some assistant jobs and then you could get to know a few different people. So she's like, hey, you should come to the Atlanta Photojournalism Seminar. And I showed up, I ended up meeting Marcy Nicewander there um, from OU. And she was like, hey, you should sign up to the master's program at OU. My whole mindset was still like, I don't have money to go to college. Um, again, I don't have money to get my master's. And uh, she was like, well, I'll just sign up, see where it leads you. And so like, uh, they sent me an email and they were like, you should apply. And I was like, well, whatever. The, uh, you know, I, I was working three jobs, you know, as a waiter, I was waiting tables, fitting people for shoes and also working at like an art store. So like, I was just sort of like, well, what do I have to lose? Let's whatever, let's see what, let's see what the deal is. Let's see what's on the table. And I kind of said before I went into that was like, they're going to have to give me full tuition and a job. That's how, that's the only way I'll make this work. And then uh, after I applied, uh, they gave me full tuition and a job. Uh, and I was just sort of like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, I guess this could work. And then that's that's how I kind of got into my master's at OU, which was um, really surprising to me. Very, very surprising. Wow. <laughs> I think a lot of people are jealous right now. You earned it because you were curious. You asked questions. Right. You followed your dream of telling stories and then you reached out to right. the right people. Yeah. Even and though it might have been by accident. Yeah, I think I think it was like sort of this happy, happy accident. I'm I'm really grateful to the the people at OU for for giving me a shot, giving me a chance because I, I really wasn't a journalist at all. And uh, you know, I think a I have those photos from back then and they're okay. They're not bad. I, I'm grateful that they gave me the opportunity. And maybe I, I wonder about it sometimes, like maybe if I had entered in a more competitive year, that might not have gotten in or something like that. But uh, luckily I, I did and they gave me a chance. And, you know, like I think the best advice that I ever got was about photojournalism was from Matthew Hatcher, which was when I was in the middle of 2020 and I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't getting jobs. I wasn't getting any freelance stuff and I was just showing up every day and uh, I was sending emails to different people and they were not getting back to me uh, he just said uh, 
shoot it anyway, you know, photograph it anyway. He's like, he's like, it doesn't matter. Like send an email in the morning, go, sh- go photograph it. Just keep going. Shoot. Like it's, a, it's still important. You know, it's kind of how he was saying, it's like, you know, it's still like what you're doing is not unimportant. I did that enough. And people from the beginning of like 2020, especially I think my initial, you know, like graduate cohort, I think they definitely saw a difference from the beginning of 2020 to the end of 2020. And they saw like just the grind that was happening there. I was doing a number of different stories or events or whatever a week. And I was, I was really kind of cutting my teeth on it. And then by the end of, you know, like the beginning of 2021, I actually had a a pretty solid base and certain agencies started to uh, call me instead, which was, which was really different. But you did it on your own. Uh, I so mean, that, right? Because I mean, I you mean, felt you needed to be there. You felt compelled that you I needed felt to compelled. Tell the last thing I'm going to talk to you about. Yeah. And I mean, if someone's listening to this this mm. far deep, then yeah, yeah. we might as well keep going. Yeah, yeah. One more question. So let's get into journalism advocacy and our historic directive to be unbiased. Right. You claim that's BS. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can you tell us why you think raw data can help make us more sympathetic? My focus on refugees, like, and and how it kind of like, you know, when I when I was there and I was working in a in refugee camps, I was definitely like an advocate. I was an advocate for refugees. I was all about like improving lives for refugees, and I had a, a dog in the fight. There is like a difference between like having like a journalistic approach. I really struggle with like the word objective because like everybody's like you should be objective like there should be objective and I really don't believe that I don't I don't think you can be objective I think anybody who thinks that they're objective are really actually dangerous if you think that like you don't have biases then like you you're just completely oblivious to them and I think that's really dangerous I don't really think that you should try to be objective I think you should try and be honest I think you should be uh transparent and so like i think it gets really messy when you're like a part of the story and some journalists do that and i think that's completely valid but like you just have to say that i think there's a difference between like being biased and trying to like essentially create propaganda being open with your biases because there is like a fairness there's like a fairness in journalism and i would hear jeff garrett talk about that a lot he didn't really talk about objectivity he talked about fairness and he said what's fair how can you be fair with the story how can you tell it in a, in a way that you can't go around like just creating propaganda like telling people that like you know this group of people is evil or anything like that you can't be malicious you can't do that kind of a thing but but people should know where you're coming from people should know your biases people should know like what it is and what you're writing and what you're taking photos of it's going to reflect your values to not like address that i think is one of the biggest downfalls of of journalism and you know i i went through the master's program at OU and they really kind of harped on trying to be neutral and objective as much as possible and I really that really rubbed me the wrong way because I really felt like the uh the way like you know depending on like you know you move your camera two degrees to like the left or something like that it's completely different picture pictures aren't 
really objective. They're sometimes they're haphazard. Sometimes you don't even mean to get what you took a picture of, and 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 that's just uh, coming from an art background. That's that's just art. That's just how art works. Uh, you know, they're happy accidents. You know, a lot of the time, and 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 then you you get better at making happy accidents. But like the uh, I think I think the really uh, when I was during the the uh, during covering a lot of the protests in 2020, I was able to meet a lot of journalists who were you know people of color um, from from all different walks of life, and uh, they really um, challenged me to look at objectivity and to see what it was doing and to kind of look at it and be like well who's it who's it support like who's objective like you know who, who you know like and they gave me some different like resources to to listen to to kind of get me back to my initial gut conclusion which was that objectivity is not real because I, I knew that from being like an artist but like uh, I think the you know you get trained in certain these certain different ways but um, they kind of showed me that a lot of times this, this, you know, straw man of this, of like being objective actually just kind of supports the, the norms of the people who are in power. They really challenged me with that. And I don't think it should be something that's necessarily enforced newsrooms. And I know that it is a lot of different places that, that you should be objective, you should be neutral. And it's like, well, we're not being super objective or neutral on on this war with Russia. Like it's like it's like we're not getting both sides of the story, and there's a reason for that. And there's a there's a reason our, our whole country has a bias, and their whole country has a bias against us, and that's understandable. And I think you just have to know where people are coming from. You can kind of, you know, history isn't necessarily true in 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 like a in an objective way either. You're you're getting you're getting, you know, anything that like people are involved in doesn't necessarily end up being objective unless it's actual data. Like if it can be objectively, you know, measured, this is, this is, you know, people's hands are all over everything. It's, it's really a messy thing. Journalism is really a messy thing. And so like, I think you have to like kind of ask yourself, okay, well, especially like intaking news, like, do I trust the person who's telling me this? And there are different companies that you trust and there are different companies you don't trust and it's because who's who's behind it who's running it and i don't know i th i think it, it's better to look at it in that way because it's not it's not science we're not necessarily doing science here and there's no way to do science here because it's you would need like 20 journalists from every perspective to to kind of piece together an objective you know like thing and it would be it wouldn't be a one side and it wouldn't be easy and it wouldn't be a news headline it'd be it'd be everything from every direction and a lot of the accounts would contradict and that would be objective <laughs> well i think you gave our listeners um, a very objective viewpoint thank you steven center for joining me on the buckeye visualist your story of humanitarian coverage is inspiring and I wish you well at the Toledo Blade and beyond. You can find Steven on Instagram at Zenner Steven. That's Z-E-N-N-E-R-S-T-E-P-H-E-N. -E -E well, that wraps up another episode of the Buckeye Visualist. I am your humble host, Lori King. Keep an F2 point mind, everybody. You've been listening to the Buckeye Visualist Podcast. 